0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic science fiction novel written by the French author Jules Verne. It was first published in 1870 and is one of Verne's most famous works. The novel is known for its imaginative portrayal of underwater exploration and adventure. The story is narrated by Professor Pierre Aronnax, a French marine biologist who, along with his faithful servant Concile and a Canadian harpooner named Ned Land, embarks on a journey to investigate mysterious sea creatures that have been causing havoc in the world's oceans. They soon discover that these creatures are actually part of a technologically advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by the enigmatic Captain Nemo. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is considered a pioneering work of science fiction and is known for its accurate and detailed descriptions of underwater life and technology. It has been adapted into numerous films, television series, and other media and continues to be a beloved classic of literature. If you enjoy our program. Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend, you both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's 3Z.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify and Apple Music. Chapter 22 inch Igri Somnia The following day, January 10th, the Nautilus continued her course between two seas but with such remarkable speed that I could not estimate it at less than 35 miles an hour. The rapidity of her screw was such that I could neither follow nor count its revolutions. When I reflected that this marvelous electric agent, after having afforded motion, heat, and light to the Nautilus, still protected her from outward attack and transformed her into an arc of safety which no profane hand might touch without being thunder-stricken, my admiration was unbounded and from the structure it extended to the engineer who had called it into existence. Our course was directed to the west, and on the 11th of January, we doubled Cape Wessel, situation in 135 degrees long, and 10 degrees south flat, which forms the east point of the Gulf of Carpentaria. The reefs were still numerous, but more equalized and marked on the chart with extreme precision. The Nautilus easily avoided the breakers of money to port and the Victoria Reefs to starboard placed at 130 degrees long. And on the 10th parallel, which we strictly followed. On the 13th of January, Captain Nemo arrived in the Sea of Timor and recognized the island of that name in 122 degrees long. From this point, the direction of the Nautilus inclined towards the southwest. Her head was set for the Indian Ocean. Where would the fancy of Captain Nemo carry us next? Would he return to the coast of Asia, or would he approach again the shores of Europe? And probable conjectures both to a man who fled from inhabited continents. Then would he descend to the south? Was he going to double the Cape of Good Hope, then Cape Horn, and finally go as far as the Antarctic Pole? Would he come back at last to the Pacific, where his Nautilus could sail free and independently? Time would show. After having skirted the sands of Cartier, of Hibernia, Seringapidum, and Scott, last efforts of the solid against the liquid element, On the 14th of January, we lost sight of land altogether. The speed of the Nautilus was considerably abetted, and with a regular course, she sometimes swam in the bosom of the waters, sometimes floated on their surface. During this period of the voyage, Captain Nemo made some interesting experiments on the varied temperature of the sea in different beds. Under ordinary conditions these observations are made by means of rather complicated instruments, and with somewhat doubtful results, by means of thermometrical sounding leads, the glass is often breaking under the pressure of the water, or an apparatus grounded on the variations of the resistance of metals to the electric currents. Results so obtained could not be correctly calculated. On the contrary, Captain Nemo went himself to test the temperature in the depths of the sea, and his thermometer, placed in communication with the different sheets of water, gave him the required degree immediately and accurately. It was thus that, either by overloading her reservoirs or by descending obliquely by means of her inclined planes, the Nautilus successively attained the depth of three, four, five, seven, nine. And 10,000 yards, and the definite result of this experience was that the sea preserved an average temperature of 4 degrees and a half at a depth of 5,000 fathoms under all latitudes. On the 16th of January, the Nautilus sink becalmed only a few yards beneath the surface of the waves. Her electric apparatus remained inactive, and her motionless screw left her to drift at the mercy of the currents. I supposed that the crew was occupied with interior repairs rendered necessary by the violence of the mechanical movements of the machine. My companions and I then witnessed a curious spectacle. The hatches of the saloon were open and, as the beacon light of the Nautilus was not in action, a dim obscurity reigned in the midst of the waters. I observed the state of the sea under these conditions and the largest fish appeared to me no more than scarcely defined shadows when the Nautilus found herself suddenly transported into full light. I thought at first that the beacon had been lighted and was casting its electric radiance into the liquid mass. I was mistaken and after a rapid survey perceived my error. The Nautilus floated in the midst of a phosphorescent bed which, in this obscurity, became quite dazzling. It was produced by myriads of luminous animalculi, whose brilliancy was increased as they glided over the metallic hull of the vessel. I was surprised by lightning in the midst of these luminous sheets as though they had been rivulets of lead melted in an ardent furnace or metallic masses brought to a white heat so that, By force of contrast, certain portions of light appeared to cast a shade in the midst of the general ignition from which all shades seemed banished. No, this was not the calm irradiation of our ordinary lightning. There was unusual life and vigor, this was truly living light. In reality, it was an infinite agglomeration of colored infusoria, of veritable globules of jelly provided with a thread-like tentacle, and of which as many as 25,000 have been counted in less than two cubic half inches of water. During several hours, the Nautilus floated in these brilliant waves, and our admiration increased as we watched the marine monsters disporting themselves like salamanders. I saw there in the midst of this fire that burns not the swift and elegant porpoise, the indefatigable clan of the ocean, and some swordfish ten feet long, those prophetic heralds of the hurricane whose formidable sword would now and then strike the glass of the saloon. Then appeared the smaller fish, the ballista, the leaping mackerel, wolf thorntails, and a hundred others which strike the luminous atmosphere as they swam. This dazzling spectacle was enchanting. Perhaps some atmospheric condition increased the intensity of this phenomenon. Perhaps some storm agitated the surface of the waves. But at this depth of some yards, the Nautilus was unmoved by its fury and reposed peacefully in still water. So we progressed, incessantly charmed by some new marvel. The days passed rapidly away. And I took no account of them. Ned, according to habit, tried to vary the diet on board. Like snails, we were fixed to our shells and I declare it is easy to lead a snail's life. Thus this life seemed easy and natural and we thought no longer of the life we led on land, but something happened to recall us to the strangeness of our situation. On the 18th of January, The Nautilus was in 105 degrees long and 15 degrees south lat. The weather was threatening; the sea rough and rolling. There was a strong east wind. The barometer, which had been going down for some days, foreboded a coming storm. I went up onto the platform just as the second lieutenant was taking the measure of the horary angles and waited according to habit till the daily phrase was said. But on this day it was exchanged for another phrase not less incomprehensible. Almost directly, I saw Captain Nemo appear with a glass looking towards the horizon. For some minutes, he was immovable without taking his eye off the point of observation. Then he lowered his glass and exchanged a few words with his lieutenant. The latter seemed to be a victim to some emotion that he tried in vain to repress. Captain Nemo, having more command over himself, was cool. He seemed, too, to be making some objections to which the lieutenant replied by formal assurances. At least I concluded so by the difference of their tones and gestures. For myself, I had looked carefully in the direction indicated without seeing anything. The sky and water were lost in the clear line of the horizon. However, Captain Nemo walked from one end of the platform to the other without looking at me, perhaps without seeing me. His step was firm but less regular than usual. He stopped sometimes, crossed his arms, and observed the sea. What could he be looking for on that immense expanse? The Nautilus was then some hundreds of miles from the nearest coast. The lieutenant had taken up the glass and examined the horizon steadfastly, going and coming stamping his foot and showing more nervous agitation than his superior officer. Besides, this mystery must necessarily be solved, and before long, for, upon an order from Captain Nemo, the engine, increasing its propelling power, made the screw turn more rapidly. Just then the lieutenant drew the captain's attention again. The latter stopped walking and directed his glass towards the place indicated. He looked long. I felt very much puzzled and descended to the drawing room and took out an excellent telescope that I generally used. Then, leaning on the cage of the watchlight that jutted out from the front of the platform, set myself to look over all the line of the sky and sea but my eye was no sooner applied to the glass than it was quickly snatched out of my hands. I turned round. Captain Nemo was before me, but I did not know him. His face was transfigured. His eyes flashed sullenly, his teeth were set, his stiff body, clenched fists, and head shrunk between his shoulders betrayed the violent agitation that pervaded his whole frame. He did not move. My glass, fallen from his hands, had rolled at his feet. Had I unwittingly provoked this fit of anger? Did this incomprehensible person imagine that I had discovered some forbidden secret? No, I was not the object of this hatred, for he was not looking at me as I was steadily fixed upon the impenetrable point of the horizon. At last, Captain Nemo recovered himself. His agitation subsided. He addressed some words in a foreign language to his lieutenant, then turned to me. M. Aronnax," he said, in rather an imperious tone, I require you to keep one of the conditions that bind you to me. What is it, Captain? You must be confined with your companions until I think fit to release you. You are the master, I replied, looking steadily at him. But may I ask you one question? None, sir. There was no resisting this imperious command, it would have been useless. I went down to the cabin occupied by Ned Land and Concile and told them the captain's determination. You may judge how this communication was received by the Canadian. But there was not time for altercation. For of the crew waited at the door and conducted us to that cell where we had passed our first night on board the Nautilus. Ned Land would have remonstrated, but the door was shut upon him. Will Master tell me what this means? asked Kinsale. I told my companions what had passed. They were as much astonished as I and equally at a loss how to account for it. Meanwhile, I was absorbed in my own reflections and could think of nothing but the strange fear depicted in the Captain's countenance. I was utterly at a loss to account for it when my cogitations were disturbed by these words from Nedland. Hello! Breakfast is ready. And indeed the table was laid. Evidently Captain Nemo had given this order at the same time that he had hastened the speed of the Nautilus. Will Master permit me to make a recommendation? asked Conseil. Yes, my boy. Well, it is that master breakfasts. It is prudent, for we do not know what may happen. You are right, Conseil. Unfortunately, said Ned Land, they have only given us the ship's fare. Friend Ned, asked Conseil, what would you have said if the breakfast had been entirely forgotten? This argument cut short the Harpooner's recriminations. We sat down to table. The meal was eaten in silence. Just then the luminous globe that lighted the cell went out and left us in total darkness. Nedland was soon asleep and what astonished me was that Conseil went off into a heavy slumber. I was thinking what could have caused his irresistible drowsiness when I felt my brain becoming stupefied. In spite of my efforts to keep my eyes open, they would close. A painful suspicion seized me. Evidently soporific substances had been mixed with the food we had just taken. Imprisonment was not enough to conceal Captain Nemo's projects from us, Sleep was more necessary. I then heard the panels shut. The undulations of the sea, which caused a slight rolling motion, ceased. Had the Nautilus quitted the surface of the ocean? Had it gone back to the motionless bed of water? I tried to resist sleep. It was impossible. My breathing grew weak. I felt a mortal cold freeze my stiffened and half-paralyzed limbs. My eyelids, like leaden caps, fell over my eyes. I could not raise them, a morbid sleep full of hallucinations bereft me of my being. Then the visions disappeared and left me in complete insensibility. Chapter Ziaith Coral Kingdom The next day I woke with my head singularly clear. To my great surprise, I was in my own room. My companions, no doubt, had been reinstated in their cabin without having perceived it any more than I. Of what had passed during the night they were as ignorant as I was, and to penetrate this mystery I only reckoned upon the chances of the future. I then thought of quitting my room. Was I free again or a prisoner? Quite free. I opened the door, went to the half-deck, went up the central stairs. The panels, shut the evening before, were open. I went on to the platform. Nedland and Conseil waited there for me. I questioned them. They knew nothing. Lost in a heavy sleep in which they had been totally unconscious, they had been astonished at finding themselves in their cabin. As for the Nautilus, it seemed quiet and mysterious as ever. It floated on the surface of the waves at a moderate pace. Nothing seemed changed on board. The second lieutenant then came onto the platform and gave the usual order below. As for Captain Nemo, he did not appear. Of the people on board, I only saw the impassive steward who served me with his usual dumb regularity. About two o'clock, I was in the drawing room, busied in arranging my notes, when the captain opened the door and appeared. I bowed. He made a slight inclination in return without speaking. I resumed my work, hoping that he would perhaps give me some explanation of the events of the preceding night. He made none. I looked at him. He seemed fatigued. His heavy eyes had not been refreshed by sleep. His face looked very sorrowful. He walked to and fro, sat down and got up again took a chance book, put it down, consulted his instruments without taking his habitual notes and seemed restless and uneasy. At last, he came up to me and said, Are you a doctor, M. Aronnax?" I so little expected such a question that I stared some time at him without answering. Are you a doctor? He repeated. Several of your colleagues have studied medicine. Well, said I, I am a doctor and resident surgeon to the hospital. I practiced several years before entering the museum. Very well, sir. My answer had evidently satisfied the captain, but not knowing what he would say next, I waited for other questions, reserving my answers according to circumstances. M. Aranax, will you consent to prescribe for one of my men? he asked. Is he ill? Yes. I am ready to follow you. Come, then. I own my heartbeat, I do not know why. I saw a certain connection between the illness of one of the crew and the events of the day before and this mystery interested me at least as much as the sick man. Captain Nemo conducted me to the poop of the Nautilus and took me into a cabin situated near the sailors' quarters. There on a bed lay a man about 40 years of age with a resolute expression of countenance, a true type of an Anglo-Saxon. I leant over him. He was not only ill, he was wounded. His head, swathed in bandages covered with blood, lay on a pillow. I undid the bandages and the wounded man looked at me with his large eyes and gave no sign of pain as I did it. It was a horrible wound. The skull, shattered by some deadly weapon, left the brain exposed which was much injured. Clots of blood had formed in the bruised and broken mass, in color like the drakes of wine. There was both contusion and suffusion of the brain. His breathing was slow, and some spasmodic movements of the muscles agitated his face. I felt his pulse. It was intermittent. The extremities of the body were growing cold already and I saw death must inevitably ensue. After dressing the unfortunate man's wounds, I readjusted the bandages on his head and turned to Captain Nemo. What caused this wound? I asked. What does it signify, he replied evasively. A shock has broken one of the levers of the engine which struck myself. But your opinion as to his state? I hesitated before giving it. You may speak, said the captain. This man does not understand French. I gave a last look at the wounded man. He will be dead in two hours. Can nothing save him? Nothing. Captain Nemo's hand contracted and some tears glistened in his eyes which I thought incapable of shedding any. For some moments, I still watched the dying man whose life ebbed slowly. His pallor increased under the electric light that was shed over his deathbed. I looked at his intelligent forehead furrowed with premature wrinkles produced probably by misfortune and sorrow. I tried to learn the secret of his life from the last words that escaped his lips. You can go now, M. Aronnax," said the captain. I left him in the dying man's cabin and returned to my room much affected by this scene. During the whole day, I was haunted by uncomfortable suspicions and at night I slept badly and between my broken dreams, I fancied I heard distant sighs like the notes of a funeral song. Were they the prayers of the dead, murmured in that language that I could not understand? The next morning, I went on to the bridge. Captain Nemo was there before me. As soon as he perceived me, he came to me. Professor. Will it be convenient to you to make a submarine excursion today, with my companions? I asked. If they like. We obey your orders, Captain. Will you be so good then as to put on your cork jackets? It was not a question of dead or dying. I rejoined Nedland and Concile and told them of Captain Nemo's proposition. Concile hastened to accept it and this time the Canadians seemed quite willing to follow our example. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. At half past 8 we were equipped for this new excursion and provided with two contrivances for light and breathing. The double door was open and, accompanied by Captain Nemo, was followed by a dozen of the crew, we set foot at a depth of about 30 feet on the solid bottom on which the Nautilus rested. A slight declivity ended in an uneven bottom at 15 fathoms depth. This bottom differed entirely from the one I had visited on my first excursion under the waters of the Pacific Ocean. Here, there was no fine sand, no submarine prairies, no sea forest. I immediately recognized that marvelous region in which, on that day, the Captain did the honors to us. It was the Coral Kingdom. The light produced a thousand charming varieties playing in the midst of the branches that were so vividly colored. I seemed to see the membranous and cylindrical tubes tremble beneath the undulation of the waters. I was tempted to gather their fresh petals, ornamented with delicate tentacles, some just blown, the others budding, while a small fish, swimming swiftly, touched them slightly like flights of birds. But if my hand approached these living flowers, these animated, sensitive plants, the whole colony took alarm. The white petals re-entered their red cases, the flowers faded as I looked and the bush changed into a block of stony knobs. Chance had thrown me just by the most precious specimens of the zoophyte. This coral was more valuable than that found in the Mediterranean on the coasts of France, Italy and Barbary. Its tints justified the poetical names of Flower of Blood and Froth of Blood that trade has given to its most beautiful productions coral is sold for 20 pounds per ounce, and in this place, the watery beds would make the fortunes of a company of coral divers. This precious matter, often confused with other polypi, formed then the inextricable plots called Machiota, and on which I noticed several beautiful specimens of pink coral. But soon the bushes contract, and their aborisations increase. Real petrified thickets, long joints of fantastic architecture were disclosed before us. Captain Nemo placed himself under a dark gallery where by a slight declivity we reached a depth of a hundred yards. The light from our lamps produced sometimes magical effects following the rough outlines of the natural arches and pendants disposed like lusters that were tipped with points of fire. At last, after walking two hours, we had attained a depth of about 300 yards, that is to say, the extreme limit on which coral begins to form. But there was no isolated bush, nor modest brushwood at the bottom of lofty trees. It was an immense forest of large mineral vegetations, enormous petrified trees united by garlands of elegant sea bindweed. All adorned with clouds and reflections. We passed freely under their high branches, lost in the shade of the waves. Captain Nemo had stopped. I and my companions halted, and, turning round, I saw his men were forming a semicircle round their chief. Watching attentively, I observed that four of them carried on their shoulders an object of an oblong shape. We occupied, in this place, the center of a vast glade surrounded by the lofty foliage of the submarine forest. Our lamps threw over this place a sort of clear twilight that singularly elongated the shadows on the ground. At the end of the glade the darkness increased and was only relieved by little sparks reflected by the points of coral. Ned Land and Concile were near me. We watched, and I thought I was going to witness a strange scene. On observing the ground, I saw that it was raised in certain places by slight excrescences encrusted with limey deposits and disposed with irregularity that betrayed the hand of man. In the midst of the glade, on a pedestal of rocks roughly piled up, stood a cross of coral that extended its long arms that one might have thought were made of petrified blood. Upon a sign from Captain Nemo, one of the men advanced, and at some feet from the cross, he began to dig a hole with a pickaxe that he took from his belt. I understood all. This glade was a cemetery, this hole a tomb, this oblong object, the body of the man who had died in the night. The captain and his men had come to bury their companion in this general resting place at the bottom of this inaccessible ocean. The grave was being dug slowly, the fish fled on all sides while their retreat was being thus disturbed. I heard the strokes of the pickaxe which sparkled when it hit upon some flint lost at the bottom of the waters. The hole was soon large and deep enough to receive the body. Then the bearers approached, the body, enveloped in a tissue of white linen, was lowered into the damp grave. Captain Nemo, with his arms crossed on his breast, and all the friends of him who had loved them, knelt in prayer. All fell on their knees in an attitude of prayer. The grave was then filled in with the rubbish taken from the ground, which formed a slight mound. When this was done captain nemo and his men rose then approaching the grave they knelt again and all extended their hands in sign of a last to do then the funeral procession returned to the nautilus passing under the arches of the forest in the midst of thickets along the coral bushes and still on the ascent at last the light of the ship appeared And its luminous track guided us to the nautilus at one o'clock we had returned as soon as i had changed my clothes i went up onto the platform and a prey to conflicting emotions i sat down near the binnacle captain nemo joined me i rose and said to him so as i said he would this man died in the night yes m aranax and he rests now near his companions in the coral cemetery yes forgotten by all else but not by us we dug the grave and the polypite undertake to seal our dead for eternity and burying his face quickly in his hands he tried in vain to suppress a sob then he added Our peaceful cemetery is there, some hundred feet below the surface of the waves. Your dead sleep quietly, at least, Captain, out of the reach of sharks. Yes, sir, of sharks and men, gravely replied the Captain. Part two.